So starting in verse 3, follow along as I read. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. Now, you know why Jacob is sending messengers ahead to talk to Esau, right? You remember what circumstances precipitated Jacob leaving home in the first place. Uh, He had, I guess, not quite pulled the wool over his father's eyes, but pulled the goatskin on his own arms and deceived his father and stolen uh, the blessing from Esau uh, in a very brazen, sneaky, Jacob-like move. And then he had fled because Esau wanted to kill him. It's been decades, but he's headed back now uh, to Esau. And uh, Jacob has not ceased to be shrewd, and he sends emissaries ahead bearing gifts, hoping that Esau is going to have mercy on him. Um, If I had offended you and I had disappeared for 15 years and I was coming back to visit you, and I started to send you gifts in advance and text messages. How are you doing? How's it going? How are you feeling? (laughs) I'm on my way. I want to find favor in your sight. That's kind of the idea. Now, verse 6, the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, we came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Uh, Not great news for Jacob, evidently. Um. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. You can understand why. This is probably not just Esau and the welcoming committee of 400 men coming to welcome Jacob back. Verse 7, he's greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. We get a glimpse of how serious Jacob thinks this threat is. He's going to divide his, his livelihood, his life up into two parts in the hope that at least some of it is going to be rescued. In fact, we're going to see in a little while here, he's going to divide his, divide his family up in the hope that some of them make it through what's about to happen. Verse 9, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. He cries out to the Lord for mercy. So he stayed there that night, verse 13, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me, put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you, then you shall say, 
They belong to your servant Jacob, and they are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. You see, Jacob's taking, the, taking this to the next level. He's, he's making sure that Jacob, I mean, that, that Esau receives a gift, you know, as it were, every day before he gets there. You know, trying to, to pave the path for himself as he comes. Verse 19, he likewise instructed the second, the third, all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. Now, we find Jacob at a place here in his life where he is on a path that is leading him to judgment, really. This is, this is an encounter with Esau that, that was a long time coming. It was well-deserved, if you think about it. And at this point, it is somewhat inevitable that Jacob is going to have this moment of reckoning with Esau. Uh, Jacob having left Laban and he's heading back home, uh, this sort of long-awaited reckoning uh, that probably Jacob forgot about, at least on some level. There were surely days when he didn't think about it. Those days when that seven years for Rachel seemed like just a matter of days, seemed like a day because he loved her so much. Surely he wasn't you know, wringing his hands over Esau every day. There were probably some blissful seasons when he forgot all about that mess that he left back behind at home. But the fact that he forgot about it didn't make it go away. Uh, what he had done was catching up with him here. This doom was awaiting him. The time that had passed between when Jacob left and when he was now returning home had not exonerated him or erased what had happened. In fact, the judgment that was waiting for him was in a sense, I mean in a human sense, well deserved, wasn't it? I mean, this is, this is long before the days of uh, you know, due process and, and that sort of stuff, the legal system that we know. Uh, Jacob had done his brother wrong. And his brother was uh, uh, rightly seeking recompense, seeking uh, revenge on Jacob uh, in a human sense. Uh, Jacob was not an innocent bystander. Jacob was not misunderstood. Jacob had this calculated plot by which he had stolen something of great value from his brother and then escaped. So the judgment that Jacob's going to uh, is in that sense well-deserved. Esau was right to be angry at Jacob. And Jacob, at this point in his life, there isn't really a way for Jacob to escape from this. Jacob, Jacob can't go back to Laban. You remember the circumstances there in his departure from Laban. He doesn't have a warm welcome back behind him. He can't run away. Right? He's got all these women and children and flocks with him. He's got all these little ones. that There's no way he can escape from Esau and 400 men on foot. And there's nobody for him to call to. You know, Jacob was not the kind of guy that had all kinds of friends at his elbow here. Jacob didn't have anyone to call on. And who would he call on anyway that would show up in time to deliver him from Esau? The judgment was well-deserved and it was inevitable in that way. And here was Jacob plodding towards it step after step. Every step he took, he was getting closer to that judgment. Uh, in that way, I think that Jacob is very much a, a picture of fallen humanity apart from the grace of God. Jacob is a picture of the sinner. 
in that he is on his way to judgment, and that judgment is well-deserved and it is inevitable. The, the path that we are all walking, it is not a, a geographic path like Jacob was walking on the earth. It is the, the path of day after day through time, but it is leading us to judgment, isn't it? It is leading us, we are all progressing day after day to that day of judgment, and though we might forget about it, it doesn't go away. Though we might be distracted by the cares of the world for a season here and there, the fact that, as the Scripture says, Hebrews chapter 9 says, it's appointed for each of us once to die, and then comes judgment. Then comes the day of reckoning, where we stand before the God who made us and who bestowed life and grace and gifts upon us, and we give account for the way that we have used what He's given us. We give account for the way that we have lived under His authority and honored Him in the world that He made. You know, you may not think about that much. You may not think about that every day. But friends, judgment is waiting for us, isn't it? We are not going to live forever. And the God who made us and gave us life, we are going to be face to face with Him. There's going to be a day when we close our eyes and we do not open them again in this life. Or there will be a day when He comes in power as we just sang about. And all of us will stand before Him. And then it will be over. There is a day of reckoning. There is a judgment coming for us. Or we are going towards it the way that Jacob was. And in a very similar way to, to Jacob, that judgment is well deserved for us, isn't it? We who are God's people, we who were made in His image and given grace and life. We have not honored Him as we ought, have we? You have not loved Him and served Him as we ought uh, from the very beginning. I mean, you all are very well familiar with the circumstances surrounding our first parents in the garden and that first great sin of rebellion against God when they ate the fruit of the tree that had been forbidden them. And it is easy, friends, I think no matter how many times we talk about it, it is easy sometimes to think of that as a light thing, as a small thing, what they did in the garden when they disobeyed God. I mean, yes, they weren't perfect. Surely they weren't perfect, right? But it is no small thing when man made in God's image rebelled against him in his own house. It is no small thing when a creature made of dust with his breath in it decided that they would decide what's next, not him and put themselves in a position of authority. Some of, most of my family is sick at home right now, but Samuel's here tonight. Uh, he can imagine, you all can imagine what would happen if tonight when I got home, if my boys uh, were downstairs and I said, boys, it's, it's bedtime. It's time for you guys to head upstairs and brush your teeth and, and get in bed. And one of my sons turned to me and said, I don't think so, Dad. I think it's time to watch a movie. How about you go upstairs and go to bed? You, that has not happened at our house, but you can imagine what would happen, right? I mean, some of you made the sound that the other boys would make. Oh, right. How dare he say something like that to Dad? Right. That's, a, I, that's a silly illustration, but they give you a sense of the rebellion that took place in the garden. You know, my, I am positionally in our house uh, in authority over my sons and am to be honored. 
But how much higher is God than me? And how much lower am I right, than one of my boys? How much greater is that difference? And yet when Adam says, when our first parents say, no, I think I will eat of the fruit. I think this is what's best for me. I think I'll decide. It is a grievous thing that they did. It is cosmic treason that they're guilty of. And friends, as I've said to you before many times here, didn't we grab that baton and run with it as soon as we had the opportunity? I mean, hasn't each of us been guilty of saying, no, I think I will decide what is right and wrong in the world that you made. I think I'll be the judge of what's best for me and how my life should be lived. I think that I know better than you who made me. That sin, we were born in it and we have willingly run and, and continued in it. That Adamic rebellion in that way. It is not a small thing. We are all guilty of it and the Father is rightly angry about it. In that situation in our house, if, I, if, if one of my boys were to say, no, Dad, you go to bed, I'm going to stay up and watch a movie. If I were to, to, to laugh it off and say, okay, son, okay. This time, this one time, you know, you're, you're in charge tonight, but, you know, tomorrow I'm in charge, you know. That, that would be a disaster for our, it would be wrong, right? It would, it would be wickedness of me as a father. And in the same way, for God to just wink at the sin of humanity, for God to just ignore it and pretend like it didn't happen, it would be wrong, it would be unjust, God is right to be angry. Our judgment, the one waiting for us on the final day, it is well-deserved, like Jacob's was well-deserved from Esau. And also, in a similar way to Jacob, we don't have any way of escape. Right? Jacob couldn't go back to Laban, and likewise, as we make our progress through time, there is no going back. You can't go back to the cradle. You can't go back and undo anything we've done in the past. We can't even delay our progress on the path going forward. We can't slow down. We're walking towards this judgment and there's no turning around. And there is no escape, is there? There's no, there's no running away from God. Where would we run from the living God? Isn't that what the psalmist says? Where will I hide from you? There is nowhere to hide from Him. And, and like Jacob, there's no one for us to call for help. Who would we call? Would we... Would we call a priest? Would we, would we call a spiritual guru? Would we, would we call on some good works that we have done? Would we call on our money, on our material things? Would we call on our reputation? Would we call on the church to save us? Who, who could stand between us and God and save us? Well, there's nobody, friends. There's nobody that could, that could stand between us, that could stand up to Almighty God. Except one, of course. That would be God Himself. And what we see with Jacob is also similar to the situation that we're in. All Jacob can do at this point, he can't go back, he can't run away, he can't, he can't call for help. All he can do is cry out for mercy. Right? All he can do is he can cry out to, for mercy to Esau, which he, which he does is sending these emissaries. You know, Maybe you'll find favor with me. You know, Don't. He doesn't say, no, 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 you misunderstood. He just says, please, have mercy on me. He calls out, he pleads with Esau, and he also pleads with the Lord, doesn't he? He gets down on his knees and he prays and he asks God to have mercy on him. Jacob's only options here are to ask the party who's been offended 
to have mercy on him and to call out to God to have mercy on him. And it is the same way with us. Only for us, those two parties are the same, aren't they? The offended party and the God of heaven are the one and the same. We only have the one to cry out to. The one standing in judgment waiting for us, the executioner, is the living God Himself. So like Jacob, well, Jacob had the two options, really. We just have the one. To cry out to that God for mercy before that hour dawns. And the question that I ask you all tonight is, have you cried out to that God for mercy? Have you called on Him? You know, Jacob... Jacob saw the writing on the wall and he knew what was coming. And he was eager to escape the judgment to come. Have you likewise seen the writing on the wall and recognized, I'm not going to live forever. This body's not going to last forever. There's a day when I'm going to stand before my Maker and give account to Him. Am I right with Him? Is the one waiting for me, is He my friend or is He my enemy? Have I done right by Him? And if I have not, and friends, in one way or another, we have not. Will He have mercy on me? Have you called out to God that way? The second, that's the first sort of act in Jacob's crisis here. The situation that he's in as a sinner going to judgment. The second act is this surprising, unexpected encounter with God at Peniel. God's surprising appearance there. Look at verse 22 of Genesis 32. That same night he arose, that's Jacob, and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. You've got to imagine this. At night he sent all his family. He's left alone on this side of the stream. And verse 24, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. This is one of those instances where the Scripture, the economy of words is so tight. What on earth? A man wrestles with him to the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Which, I know that we have some medical professionals here in the room Putting a hip out of, out of joint is a pretty serious injury, is it not? That's not like dislocating your pinky. I mean, dislocating your pinky is a serious thing. But getting a hip taken out of, out of socket, uh, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a major doing, right? This, this man touched him, took his hip out of joint. Verse 26, Then he said, this man said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh, 
that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Limping, I think, probably is an understatement there. Yeah, limping. So, I don't know what Jacob expected to happen that night, but surely this is not it. After praying to the Lord, sending these emissaries ahead, calling out for mercy, sending his family ahead, somebody shows up and wrestles with him and puts his hip out of socket and blesses him and changes his name. That surely is not what Jacob thought was going to happen that evening. And not only that, it's not just a man, it's God himself. Jacob obviously understands that. He calls the place, I've seen God face to face and have been delivered. God appears in person to Jacob. He he grapples with him personally, face to face. And he blesses him. But he doesn't bless him without dealing him a serious wound that he bears the rest of his life. And so, friends, also is God's unexpected behavior towards sinners pictured here. So the God that we cry out to for mercy as we think about the judgment that is coming that is well-deserved and is inevitable, we call out to Him and His unexpected behavior to us looks very much like this. He comes in person and grapples with us in a way that is far more personal and intense than we might have expected. And He does bless us, but He deals us a wound in the process. What I mean by that, of course, is that The living God appears to sinful humanity when Jesus Christ Himself comes. When the goodness and loving kindness of our God appeared. When Jesus Christ came in the flesh. When God came and walked on the earth and looked at us face to face. Again, as I've said many times here on the the evenings, when, when the living God who made all of creation and made me and you those days when He walked on the earth in the flesh and people just like me and you saw Him face to face and looked at Him in His eyes and heard the sound and the tone of His voice and some of them touched Him with their hands. God appeared to us. And He did not just appear as a vision. He did not just appear for a moment. But He really did grapple with humanity, didn't He? He really did lay hands on us and engage with us. He didn't just show up for one bizarre incident in a night like this. But He lives an entire life as a human man. He lives among us. He he teaches. He preaches. He calls to repentance. He calls to faith. He performs miracles. He, He tells about the kingdom. He shows His power. He really laid hands, laid a hold of humanity and lived with us. And not only did He live with us in flesh and blood and sweat and tears and a real life with us on this dusty earth that we live on, but He grappled with humanity in a much deeper way when He laid a hold of our sin and our death and our shame. When He wrestled with that condemnation that we deserved, when at the cross He took on Himself this humiliation. I mean, far, he, he engaged with us and laid a hold of us far more than Jacob could have ever imagined. God wasn't just going to come and wrestle with him beside a creek. 
God was going to come and wrestle with our death itself, with our sin. He was going to come and bear our burdens and bear them to the cross. And He Himself was going to die. And yet He was going to live. He was going to rise again from the dead and ascend into heaven to be seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And in doing so, in coming in this unexpected, very personal, very tactile encounter with humanity, He does bless us, doesn't He? He does does change us in a way. Change our name. Change our identity. No, this is not who you are anymore. Now you are one who has wrestled with God. Who's seen God face to face. There's a blessing He bestows on us and taken our sin upon Himself in pouring out His blood on the cross and dying for us. He saves us and gives us an inheritance that is beyond earthly value. And He gives us the privilege of being able to say what Jacob said. I have seen God face to face. And yet I've been delivered. That is, that's the blessing of the cross, friends. Where the God of heaven reveals Himself to humanity in the most clear and profound way when Jesus Christ dies on the cross for sinners and rises again from the dead. And to have seen Christ on the cross is to have seen the glory of God in the face of the Son. It's to have seen God face to face. Paul speaks about that in 2 Corinthians. He blesses us in this way. But He doesn't bless us without giving us a wound, does He? In a similar way to what Jacob experienced. Because to see Him on the cross, to see God dying on the cross for our sins is not a painless experience, is it? Because He's there dying on the cross not for His own sins. Jesus Christ dies a sinner's death. He's executed in this shameful, humiliating way not because of anything He's done. It's because of what I have done. Because of what you have done that He dies on the cross. Which means His death there is what you and I deserve. I don't deserve the rewards and the accolades and the attaboys and the respect and the loyalty that I sometimes imagine that I do in my pride. The cross makes it crystal clear what I deserve. What I deserve is a criminal's death, a sinner's death, and condemnation. And Jesus did not just endure a physical death, but He endured the right wrath of God at the cross. He endured hell itself at the cross. And that is what I deserve. And if I'm going to look to the cross and I'm going to see the cross for what it really is and Him for who He really is, I've got to acknowledge that that should be me hanging there. Not just sinners in some general, vague sense, but this sinner should have been hanging there. And if God in His providence decided to put me there, I would not have any argument to plead with Him except for to ask for mercy. That is something of a wound. And I think probably I'm speaking to a lot of people who have have known God long enough, who have known the Gospel well enough to have felt some of that pain. I know that. To have felt the pain of being humbled in that way. Of seeing that one who is without sin 
going as a lamb to the slaughter in my place, and to hear my voice among the crowd mocking, saying, crucify, crucify. And that is, that is painful. I've not had my, my hip put out of socket. But I suppose it's something like having your soul put out of joint, isn't it? To discover that you are not who you thought you were. To discover that you are not as good as you thought you were. You're not as deserving as you thought you were. In fact, what you deserve is this uttermost shame and judgment. That's painful. That'll leave you with a limp. Brothers and sisters, we should be people that have a little bit of a limp. I don't mean physically. And I don't mean that we should be people that don't believe that we've been saved by the mercy of God. But we should be people who have been humbled by the grace of God at the cross. We should be people that have seen on the cross not only an expression of God's great love for us, but an expression of the horror of our own rebellion against Him. Who've tasted the sinfulness of our own sin and been changed by it. Have you seen Christ on the cross like that? Have you looked in faith like that? Have you felt some of the pain of having your own soul wrenched, realizing what it is that you deserve and what it is that Christ paid for you? Have you seen the face of God in that way? The glory of God in Jesus Christ dying for our sins. That's the second act in Jacob's crisis here. The first one is is his pathway to judgment. The second one is this very unexpected encounter with God by the side of a brook at Pignon. The third one, and this this will be brief, the third act is Esau, the unexpected friend. So look at chapter 33. We're going to read just verses 1 through 4 of chapter 33. Immediately following what we just read, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But By the way, just as an aside here, I am glad that Jacob went before them and didn't go last. I think that is a, that is a sign of grace at work in Jacob. Verse 4, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. Read that again. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. You can imagine how Jacob wept. Have you ever experienced the kind of relief that makes you weep? The The kind of test results that are such a relief that they make you weep. The kind of news about somebody, about something that is such a relief. That thing that you were so anxious about you could not sleep and it does not fall out the way that you were afraid it would. 
And, and the sensation of relief, of release is so great that it brings tears to your eyes. Can you imagine Jacob? I mean, it's been several days at this point that he has been you know, up all night with anxiety about meeting Esau. Here that dreaded moment comes and he discovers not wrath and judgment, but welcome from a friend. Can you imagine what that must have been like for Jacob? His whole world would have shifted under his feet when he sees that look on Esau's face and sees not an enemy, not an executioner, but a friend. And in this way also, I think that we see in Jacob and Esau a picture of the salvation that God has given us. That for those sinners who have met Jesus Christ at the cross, who have seen God face to face there and been delivered, that final day of judgment is not the horror that we were afraid of, but it is rather finally seeing the friend face to face and being welcomed by him. Does this account of what Esau did, does it remind you of any other passage? Does somebody? The prodigal son, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds exactly like it. Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept, right? Now, Luke chapter 15. Oh, I, I, you all recognize it obviously already, but I'll read it just because it's so, it is so great. Luke chapter 15, verse 20. When the prodigal son is returning, the father... Verse 20, he arose and came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Just like Esau. Or really Esau, just like him. Now, what is the Lord Jesus talking about when he tells this parable in Luke chapter 15? He is talking about the Lord's response to repentant sinners. He is talking about how God receives those who come to Him for mercy. He receives them as long-lost and well-beloved children. And like Esau, who was supposed to be the judge and the executioner, yet at that last moment he runs and embraces him and hugs them around the neck and showers kisses on them. I mean, imagine the prodigal sons. Imagine what it must have been like to discover. I mean, you know that he was, he, how he was preparing. I mean, he wasn't preparing like, like Jacob sending all these emissaries ahead, but he was preparing his speech because he expected a stern father who didn't want to receive him. And what did he find? He found a merciful God. Friends, can you imagine that? Can you imagine going and standing before the living God on the final day? That moment that we, many of us, have thought about so many times when you finally see Him face to face and discovering that His face is not one of judgment and sternness to those who have come to Christ for mercy, but rather you see the face of a friend. Not only a friend, but a Father who is delighted to receive you. 
One who's eager to throw his arms around you and embrace you and kiss you as true sons and daughters. Can you imagine that relief? I suggest to you that to do so is not just having fanciful imagination, but rather it is to look with faith at that reality which God Himself has said is true. The Lord Jesus Himself in these parables in Luke chapter 15 and verse 10, we look up just a few verses there. He says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It is not imagination, but it is faith to look and see the face of a God who is pleased to receive sinners in Jesus Christ. The one who would be our executioner, the one who would be our judge, the one who was rightly angry, instead is our deliverer. Instead is our friend and our brother and our king and our God. That is the deliverance that we have in Jesus Christ. Yes, all human beings, like our brother said a moment ago, nobody's born wheat, right? All human beings are sinners apart from the grace of God and well-deserving of judgment. And here it comes. We cannot escape from it. There's nothing to do but to cry out to God for mercy because He's the one whom we've offended. He's the one who can forgive us. And His his behavior towards us is very unexpected. He does not answer from afar, but He comes in person. He came in person. He engaged with us face to face. And in fact, he, he wrestled sin and death to the grave. Oh, but because He wrestled sin and death to the grave, because He has blessed us in His own death on the cross, when we come before God the Father on the final day, we can expect to see the face of a friend. The, faith, the face of one who has every right to be angry, but is not angry because of His mercy, because of His forgiveness, because of His grace. Have you called out to Him for mercy? Have you seen Christ at the cross in faith? Do you expect to see the face of a friend on the final day? These are the most important questions that I could ask you, that anybody could ask you. Now let's, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank You, O God, for Your grace. We thank You for dealing with Jacob mercifully. We thank You, O God, for humbling Yourself and appearing to Him face to face in person. Oh God, thank You for dealing with us sinners like Jacob with such mercy. And thank You for coming to deal with us in person. Oh God, Teach us to trust in You with our whole hearts. Teach us to cry out to You and not trust in ourselves. Deliver us from presumption and foolishness. May we call upon You and know that You who came and died for sinners, You will receive us. Thank You for Your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.